If you have a Bible, please do turn with me to Mark's Gospel, Gospel of Mark, chapter 5. I know this isn't in the normal run of what you've been uh, preaching on on Sunday mornings. John T. kindly allowed me to preach on anything that I wanted to. Uh, So I uh, I went for this. We're working on this in our uh, church on Sunday evenings. Mark chapter 5. Jesus has been over the previous few chapters, speaking about the kingdom of God that he's come to establish. And what happens in this chapter is part of how Jesus demonstrates what that is going to mean. So Mark chapter 5, going to begin at verse 1. Let's pay careful attention because this is the holy and living word of God. They came to the other side of the lake, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and he fell down before him and crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out, And entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed. And in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much 
Jesus had done for him. And everyone marvelled. Well, this is the word of God. Let's pray for God's help as we consider it. Father God, thank you for the redeeming power of the Lord Jesus. And Father, as we read this dramatic, remarkable and in some ways terrifying story, we pray, Father, that we would more deeply appreciate what Christ has done for us and that we would long to be with Jesus, clothed and in our right minds. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, I wonder how um, it was for you when you stepped outside your front door this morning. That's the uh, last day of October, isn't it? And, um, uh, and winter's kind of arrived, you might have noticed. But you probably noticed when you stepped out of your front door and the wind and the rain hit you in the face. And uh, depending on what kind of house you live in, perhaps you hadn't realised quite how horrible it was outside until that moment. Maybe you retreated rapidly inside to go and change your shoes and to go and find a better coat and put on an extra jumper. I don't know what you did. Um, but you know, you, the, the experience of stepping outside and discovering, oh, I hadn't realised what it was like out here. Well, in this passage, Jesus steps outside the front door of Israel for the first time in Mark's Gospel. So uh, the, the, the story starts with Jesus on, in a boat crossing uh, the Sea of Galilee. And uh, the, the, the west side of the Sea of Galilee is Jewish territory, or was in those days, and the east side was Gentile territory. Um, and so as Jesus crosses to the other side of the lake, um, he is stepping outside the front door of Israel. It's the first time, as I say, in Mark's Gospel that that, that, that happens. And so Israel, the nation of Israel, or, or the Jews as they were known by then, the, the one tribe of Judah that was left of the original nation, um, were, was a, a massively privileged nation. And there's all sorts of problems with it, which that's a matter for another day. Um, but it was nevertheless still a far kind of warmer and drier place than the rest of the world. There was all sorts of ways in which God's mercy had worked its way out in, in their society. And it was a much healthier and happier place as a result than the rest of the world, despite plenty of problems uh, there too. And so here, as he crosses the lake, Jesus is stepping into the rest of the world. And what does he meet? Well, the very first person he meets is this wretched man. A man who is a, a demonstration in his totally devastated life of the spiritual state of the whole of the rest of the world, actually. That's why uh, this, is, this is here in Mark's Gospel. That this man is not an exception. He's not a man who is radically different to the rest of the world. But rather that he, he sums up what the state of the world is. What the true nature of evil is. And so as this insane man comes screaming out of the tombs running full pelt towards Jesus, it is like the, the freezing wind and the, and the pouring rain lashing Jesus in the face as he steps outside of the door. And so what, what we have in this 
chapter, therefore, is a, a, a worked-through example, a, a, a picture of, or a, a powerful demonstration of uh, the, the ferocious face, the true nature of evil, and the way that Christ confronts it, and what Jesus does with it. And those are the two things that I'm going to speak about. So firstly, we have a display of evil. A display of evil. We're going to look at various ways in which he shows that. So Jesus steps out of the boat. This man runs towards him, coming uh, out of the tombs. Uh, we're told uh, that the running happens in verse, in verse 6. And, uh, and, uh, and he, he comes to Jesus, and there is this confrontation. And what can we learn about the nature of evil? Here's the first thing. Evil is filthy. Evil is filthy. This man lives the filthiest life imaginable. We're told that it, it is an unclean spirit, um, and that is very literally true. He, is a, he lives a filthy life. He lives among tombs. He lives among, danger, among buried dead bodies. He is, uh, uh, he is a dangerous man who cannot be met. He is naked. That's implied by what happens in verse 15 when we discover for the first time he's clothed. Actually, the other gospel accounts, if you look in Matthew and Luke, also tell us he, he was genuinely naked. And, and his life is a kind of living death. It's pretty hard for us to imagine, I think, how awful it would have been to have met this man. Now, particularly, the filthiness of evil is that evil loves death. He loves to live amongst the dead. And although that is kind of pretty weird, like a man who wants to live in a graveyard, actually that is what evil is like all through the world. That is what evil's presence is like everywhere. We have a strange fascination with death. Now, of course, you know, there are some sort of subcultures, you know, which are really into it. I was never into death metal music, but um, maybe you guess that from my appearance. I don't know. But I am. Um, um, uh, you know, so, so there are some people who, you know, who are very open about being fascinated with death. But actually, it's not just that, is it? The, the, the films, the TV are full of it. I have not and will not watch Squid Game on TV, but I guess most of us have heard of it. Uh, and some of us may have seen it. It is, I understand, a... TV program, which is all about reveling in death in some sense. And that is what the world is like. We're a, a race of people who bizarrely love filth. We love filthy language. People think there's something sort of liberating about using words that express filth. We gain a perverse pleasure from watching evil described and displayed on our screens and talking about it, joking about it even. You see, it is not only madmen who are like this. He just sums up what the world is like. Evil is filthy. Secondly, evil takes possession. Evil takes possession of what is good. It's very obvious in this story, isn't it? This, this man has been completely overtaken by uh, the unclean spirit, or spirits, as it will turn out to be. Uh, he, he's been conquered and, and, and over, overpowered by it. 
But again, actually, that is true of the whole world. What evil does is to occupy, to seize what it does not own, to take what is good and to twist it into its own purposes. To take what is made to be beautiful and make it horrific. And that is, again, the state of our world. It's God's world. God made it very good, but the devil has taken possession of it. He's taken over the the minds and hearts of the world so that rather than loving what is good and the God who makes all things good, instead we love what is evil. Now, that, that is a very, very controversial claim that the Bible makes. It is illustrated for us here. There's an interesting um, Twitter storm this week where Catherine Burblesing, some of you may have heard of, who's renowned as to be the uh, nation's strictest head teacher, um, put something on, on Twitter about how children are, uh, are, are born with stuff wrong with them. And she used the Christian phrase, original sin. She's not a Christian, but she used the phrase original sin and said, basically, uh, you know, that, that, that this is right. Children are flawed and need to be uh, helped by adults to, uh, to learn to distinguish right from wrong. Um, but that in itself shouldn't have been very interesting. What was fascinating was the fury this unleashed from, uh, from huge numbers of people. Um, here's one example of someone who responded to her. Original sin, that is the idea that people are, uh, are born with something wrong with them. Uh, original sin is a, is a disgusting, primitive concept that belongs in our species past. Teaching children in 2021 that they're born, quotes, wrong, is patently unethical. Isn't that interesting? We're furious at being told there's something wrong with us. How dare we? But actually that itself illustrates the nature of the problem. You see, we're we're so determined to believe that we are as good as we could be that we cannot see that our entire race has been taken hold of by the evil one and none of us is what we should be anymore. Evil takes possession of what is good. Thirdly, evil is deceptive. Evil lies. Did you notice that? Let's look at some more of the details here. Um, This man comes to Jesus and and says, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I do you by God, do not torment me. Do you notice the lie? The evil spirits say me twice, pretending to be one. But as we discover when Jesus asks the question in the next verse, verse 9, actually they are many. They are many. There There is a deception going on here. Evil will not show its hand. It won't admit what it is. And that is the nature of evil. It's always about deceiving. It's about saying we will not speak the truth. We will will try and conceal what is really going on, partly out of shame and partly in uh, in order to try to manipulate the situation. Evil deceives Let's keep moving. Evil is is multifaceted. That is, evil is complicated. And that's very clear with this man, isn't it? It isn't just one demon who has taken over him. 
No, he's possessed by, as he admits in verse 9, a legion of demons. When in fact, at that point, the, the, the mask slips. And no longer is it my, it is we are many. You see, what we're seeing with this man is that hidden behind the appearances of one madman is actually a whole spiritual realm that our eyes do not see. And it's just as real as what we do see, but it is powerfully working in all sorts of complicated ways to try to destroy what God has done. And the assumption of our age, that we think we understand human beings better than any age that came before us, uh, it's just nonsense. We don't at all. There is no medical explanation for what's happened to this man. There's nothing that, that a 21st century psychologist could diagnose. No, this is something which is purely spiritual. The most basic reality of his experience is an assault by the evil spiritual realm. Now, demon possession like this is rare. Even in the Bible, it's rare that this one is unique. We have no idea how this came about. And yet, his possession by this legion, the legion means a a, a cohort of Roman soldiers, normally several thousand strong here, well, going by the number of pigs, it's at least 2,000 demons uh, have occupied him. That th- this, this possession by this legion of demons stands as a symbol for what is wrong with the world. The powers of evil are many. The way it, it works its way into human society is many. There are evil ideas, there is deception, there is violence, there is cruelty. There's the, there's the lusts in human hearts that will not be satisfied. There's the hatred of our enemies and the manipulation of those we love. There are the flaws in those we find we consider good just as much as there are the wickedness of those we consider evil. And there's a huge tendency in society to try to shrink evil down to just one thing. Let's just find the one thing uh, that is wrong with society. Deal with that and we'll deal with the whole thing. Uh, Maybe we think the problem is privilege of one group of people. Uh, Maybe the problem is the patriarchy. Uh, Maybe the problem is uh, religion. Maybe the problem is atheism. Uh, And we try and shrink down evil to be one thing, but it isn't like that. Behind the facade, there is a complex and terrifying thing going on in the world. Evil is complex, multifaceted. And then we can see, this is our next one, number five, I think, evil is self-destructive. Evil is self-destructive. What have these unclean spirits done to this man? The answer is they have all but destroyed him, haven't they? That they've made him a man who hates himself. In fact, it's very clear when you get to the pigs, when the demons are driven out by Jesus and they go into the pigs, and the one effect they have on the pigs is to destroy them. That's the only thing that they can do to the pigs. That You can't wreck a pig's soul, because a pig doesn't have a soul. You can't wreck its character, because as far as I know, pigs don't have a character. of any sort. All they can do is kill them, and that is all that they do do. Interestingly, pigs actually are very good swimmers, which is an interesting fact to know in this story. Um, pigs are very good swimmers, which, which actually does illustrate what's going on here. 
It's not that the pigs are just frightened by saying, oh, what's that? Yikes, let's run away. Oops, we drowned. No, the demons have driven them to kill themselves. And that is what evil does. And that is what it's done, what they've done to this man. Verse 6, what an awful image of this man's life. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. But that is a vivid image of the state of the world. We're a race of people who we cry out lots and what we do is we damage ourselves. The power of evil in our lives is something that leads us to wreak havoc on our own well-being. Yes, sometimes genuinely to damage our own bodies but all the time, actually, to work, uh, to work harm on ourselves in one way or another. Now, this is really important that we get this, that there is simply nothing good about evil. Now, that, that might sound like a very obvious statement. And yet it does need to be said, because constantly we believe that there is. Now, my mum was on a diet once. My childhood was spent with my mum mainly on diets all the time. I never understood why, because she's quite thin. But nevertheless, she was always on a diet. Anyway, she was on a diet once that I remember her telling us she was allowed a certain number of sins a day. Um, and, um, and a sin on her diet meant something delicious. Uh, it was cake or chocolate or ice cream or something. Um, and um, that, that seems to me to sum up actually what we think of evil. Like, yeah, we know it's bad for us, but it's quite good, isn't it, as well? We, 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 we kind of always believe there's something good in there. It's worth a bit of evil to have a bit of excitement in our lives. It's worth doing some stuff. We know it's wrong, but come on, without that, life would be terribly dull. Ever found yourself thinking that? It's worth doing what I know is wrong. Let's be really clear. Evil has nothing good in it. Nothing creative in it. There's nothing which can be turned for good in it. No, evil corrodes, it destroys, it spoils, it ruins. That, I think, is why the demons beg not to be sent out of the country. Uh, What their fear is, is they're going to be sent straight to hell, I think. And then their opportunity to destroy things will be over. And they think it's worth going into the pigs. Even just for a few minutes, they can carry on destroying We need clear sights here. That the evil that we encounter in our lives and in our worlds is something which is wholly bad and only does damage. We're nearly there in our kind of litany of what evil looks like. Two more. Evil is way beyond our power to control. Evil's way beyond our power to control. This man has been chained Many times, but he wrenched the chains apart. We can't master the forces of evil. We can't even master the things that are wrong with ourselves. Can't control our own habits. We can't overcome our character flaws. We can't get a grip on our own lusts. New Year's resolutions are never kept. And we can't master the evil in our world. I think we're really watching uh, British society right now really trying really hard t- 
to chain the evils of the world without looking for help from God. And it does not work. Lastly, evil is at root about trying to seize control from God and over God. Evil is about trying to seize control from God and over God. This is dramatically shown what happens in verse 7. This man, he comes before Jesus, he cries out with a loud voice, and, and what he says is, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Now, what's going on here? Uh, firstly, why does he give this long title for Jesus? He knows who he is. The demons can't avoid that. They can see it with clear eyes. Jesus, son of the most high God. But, but why say it? And the, the reason that he says it is that um, uh, that, that seems to have, have been a belief. Maybe there's something in it. I don't know. That the, uh, that the, 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 the way that spiritual powers try to master each other is by knowing the name of who they're opposing. Apparently ancient magicians felt it was very important to know the name of the god or the demon that you were trying to control. And so by, by giving out Jesus's name, this long title, Son of the Most High God, what the demon here is, he's not showing respect. He's trying to control Jesus. He's trying to show that he is in, in control in the situation. Jesus doesn't yet know who he is. The demon thinks he's managed, or demons think they've managed to deceive him about how many of them are there. And then even more, uh, more powerfully in the next line, I adjure you, that word, what it means is um, uh, that he's trying to uh, bind Jesus, to force him by the name of God, his father, not to torment him. Like in a court, if the judge says, I adjure you, that means that you are being ordered by the authority of the court to act in a certain way, to say, to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, that kind of thing. And, and so what the demons are trying to do here is to, is to seize the initiative from Jesus, to try to control him. And that is what evil does. It tries to take control of God's world tries to take control indeed of God himself, to put itself over him, to, uh, to master him, to say it has a higher authority. Time and time again, governments do that, say our authority is higher than the living God. Societies do it and we do it. We know that God is God and yet we say, although God has forbidden this and that, our authority is higher. Now, I painted a pretty dark picture of what evil is like. But it is a picture that's painted for us in this story. This is what the world is like outside of the people of God. Occupied, controlled, being destroyed by those who hate and oppose God in every way. But the story, of course, is not a story of bad news. It is the story of good news. Here then is the second and much shorter point, which is the triumph of Jesus over evil. Jesus' response is, as always, effortless. Jesus doesn't need any magical incantations. He doesn't need even to raise his voice. He calmly asks for the demon's name and immediately the mask slips. Yeah, the demons have no uh, alternative but to tell the truth. 
Indeed, at the moment that Jesus comes on the scene, the man finds himself running towards him because he cannot, no, no matter how much the demons hate Jesus, they cannot avoid his authority and fall down before him. And as the legion of demons tries to exert control over the Son of God, it, of course, is utterly pathetic. Jesus brushes it off. The game is up. The demons must do what he says. They have to beg him to go into the pigs. They can't do anything without his permission. And the man is freed. Or we could put it this way. The massed forces of evil in its very worst form imaginable. Thousands of the most wicked beings of this universe. When they meet the Son of God, they just wilt and whimper as his word destroys them, drives them out, and the man is redeemed. You see, beneath this appalling display of evil was a man whom God made. We haven't even met him, have we? Uh, up until verse 15. His body's been there, but not his mind. We've not had to think about him himself. But actually, underneath all of that, and despite all that the, the very worst that the devil and his army of demons can do, is an image of God whom God values and loves. And this, 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 this atrocious character that he had become was never the most basic thing about him. And when the crowd arrives, presumably over the next few days, uh, as the word has spread, they find a man who is clothed and in his right mind. And that is what Christ will do for the world. This is the moment he steps outside his front door, but it is what is going to happen to the whole earth in which the powers of evil will be sent packing. The world under the power of a legion of demons will be delivered by his sheer power. Jesus is building the kingdom of God. And it will be all about redeeming men, women and children from the horrific things that evil have done to us. The filthiness will be cleansed. The possession will be, uh, will be undone. The deception will be replaced with truth. The complexity and the hor horrible complexity of evil will be swept away by the simple truth of God. The self-destruction will go to be replaced with being rebuilt. The impossibility of overcoming evil will be calmly and totally overcome by Christ. And God will indeed be in control again. The man is clothed and in his right mind. The world will become a place where there is right thinking again. We're told all the time that religion is irrational, aren't we? Um, well, maybe some religions are, but not Christianity. Indeed, Christianity is the only thing which offers a right mind. It is only when Jesus has set us free from the deceptions of this world that we can truly understand what is going on here. Some of you here are students, I'm guessing. If you are a student at university, you need to know this. Christianity will not shut your mind off to studying your subjects. No, it will open your mind. It will clarify it. It will enable you to see truly where others cannot. And of course, he's clothed. 
This man had been naked like an animal, and he was barely more than one, was he? But now he's, he's dignified and humanized as he is dressed rightly and properly. And of course, the world will be clothed not only in what it means to be human, but clothed by Christ in what Christ has made humanity, remade in the righteousness of God. This is the gospel of Christ. This is what Jesus came to do, to deliver a world from the dominion of darkness and to set it free, set us free from it. How then should we respond as we end thinking about this today? There are two ways you can respond to this, two ways each of us can respond to it. They're both set out here in the story. The first is you can beg Jesus to leave, verse 17. So people from around... They come to Jesus and they beg him to depart from their region. Why? Because, well, they're terrified of the power that Jesus has. And, presumably, they would have rather kept the pigs. And it's amazing how we can do the same. But that is one way that people often respond to Jesus. We do not like the implication that this world is under the power of evil. How dare you say these things to us? Will you please go away and stop making us feel there's something wrong with us? Leave us alone. Well, you can do that if you like. The day will come when you will find yourself very much in his presence and you will not be able to do anything about it. But far better that we recognise now there's something in us that would rather Jesus left. Well, let's repent of that. And instead, let's respond like this man did. Verse 18. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him, begged Jesus, that he might be with him. That is the second way we can respond. And the way we should respond. That This man previously could stand the company of no one. He lived on his own in the tombs. Now he craves the company of the Son of Man. He wants to be with his new Lord. He wants to be able to delight in the presence of the one who set him free. And that, of course, is how we should respond. Jesus today wants to break the power of evil over our lives. Now, if you're already a Christian, that has already been a reality for you in wonderful ways. But he goes on doing it more and more, setting us free from our self-destructive habits, transforming us into his likeness. And he does it by us knowing him. Do you want to be with Jesus? Because you should. And there is a freedom there. That is why it's great to be part of a church. It's what we should be longing for when Christ returns. Now, in this case, Jesus has a better plan for him, actually. He sends him away to be a a missionary to the Gentiles. He gets there even before the Apostle Paul in verse 20. That's what he does. Um, But the challenge, I think, is the same for us. By the Spirit, we can both be with Jesus and to proclaim how much Jesus has done for us. That is what we should do. Well, let's pray that we will respond as he did. Father God, we do praise you for this story. And as we shudder at the darkness of what uh, the devil and his servants had done to this poor man, Yet we rejoice 
that Jesus set him free. And as we shudder to realize how this man was not actually so very different from the rest of us, but really paints a picture as the need and the, the problem that all of us have and the state of our souls without you. So, Father, we rejoice that you sent your Son to deliver us. Father God, we pray that you would indeed set us free. We pray that we would know and love the Lord Jesus, that it would be the desire of our hearts to be with the one who has redeemed us and rescued us, with the one who for our sake died and rose. And Father, may we, like he did, tell others of how much Jesus has done for us. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.